Hello and welcome to the roundtable. Today we'll be discussing which conflicts to watch in 2022 going forwards. And by this, we're not going to be covering major conflicts such as Ukraine, which are already, we feel, very well covered. We're going to instead be focusing on conflicts which perhaps have slipped under the radar a bit or ones which we uh, anticipate may escalate somewhat in the year going forwards. If you are looking for more inf- information on conflicts such as Ukraine or even Myanmar, you can head over to our blog or for Ukraine, you can head to our Discord channel where the analysts and members of our community frequently post content about Ukraine and other related open source activity. So to get us started, we've got Aaron who covers the Americas for Intelligence Fusion and Viraj who covers Africa and myself covering Middle East and Central Asia. And we're all going to try and put put together a few conflicts which we think maybe are worth a bit of discussion, a bit more discussion, or maybe ones which have the potential to escalate quite significantly in an unforeseen way in the year going forwards. So I think the best way to do this probably is to just sort of speak almost one region at a time. So I'll go through you guys in a moment. I'll get one of you to start. And we'll just talk about one or two conflicts from our region which we think maybe could do with a bit of extra attention, maybe a bit more uh, media media attention, even just a bit more analysis going forwards or or even just a bit more, uh, just a bit more knowledge, because a lot of these conflicts do really, particularly in sort of in British media in particular, they do seem to just slip under the radar somewhat. So, Aaron, I think you've got some, you've got quite a bit prepared for us today. So, what, <laughs> by the looks of it, so uh, do you want to get us started? Just talk about some conflicts in your region which you think are of interest. Yeah. So the f- the first conflict in uh, in Latin America, uh, I would say, is uh, Colombia is very underreported. Um. You know, Colombia has suffered for decades from internal armed conflict between the states and the state and various guerrilla groups, such as the FARC, the ELN, uh, the M19, and various other smaller guerrilla groups. Um, most of these groups demobilized at certain points in the 1980s and the 90s. Um, but and now, you know, of course, you have the the recent demobilization uh, of the FARC, which uh, signed a peace agreement with the Colombian government in 2016. So the only real remaining guerrilla group in Colombia is the ELN, uh, the National Liberation Army. However, the conflict that exists now does not only involve the ELN, it also involves remnants of the FARC. So, uh, you know, these are uh, former FARC fighters who have been disappointed by the peace process since 2016. Uh, They have taken up arms again and... These FARC dissidents don't all belong to one big group, but they are part of uh, separate factions who are all, um, you know, under the wings of different commanders who are sometimes in alliances with each other and other times they are at odds with each other and these alliances con- continuously shift. Um, so, so you have the LN, the FARC dissidents, and then a third major player is um, the Urabenos or Clan del Golfo, which is basically a, a drug cartel that formed out of a paramilitary group and then you also have some more smaller uh, criminal and paramilitary paramilitary groups that are active in Colombia so all of these groups are fighting each other and uh, and the state for control over land so land that can be used for the production and trafficking of drugs land that can be used for commercial purposes such as uh, cattle ranching and mining uh, and land that can eventually make you a provider for local communities who can then elect you to Congress eventually. Um, now, a recent development in Colombia is a kind of a, a war that's been brewing between one of the FARC's largest dissident groups, known as the 10th Front, and the ELN. <coughs> so um, the 10th Front has grown in uh, prominence in the last two years, and is now arguably like the, the strongest, strongest remaining remnant of the FARC. Um, last year, 10th Front faced off with a rival faction of FARC dissidents known as, known as the Secunda Marquetalia. And both of these factions kind of want to be seen as the successor of the FARC and carry on its, its legacy. So they are fighting each other in the border area between Colombia and Venezuela. And uh, last year, the Secunda Marquetalia suffered heavy losses and, and three out of their four leaders were uh, were killed either by um, the 10th Front of the FARC or by Colombian special forces who killed um, Jesus Santrich uh, last year. So while the Secunda Marquetalia is suffering losses, the 10th Front has been gaining in strength. They even won a, a battle with the Venezuelan mil- military. Uh, uh, so last year they killed at least 12 soldiers and captured eight more. And those uh, Venezuelan soldiers only were released after the Venezuelan military agreed to retreat from the area. So emboldened by these recent victories, 
Uh, at the beginning of this year, the 10th front of the FARC, they took on an even larger enemy, which is the ELN. Um, and violence between these two groups has been escalating on the border area between Colombia and Venezuela. And in recent battles, at least 27 people were killed and 50 remain missing. So why is this a relevant development? Well, um, FARC dissidents of the 10th Front and the ELN have a history of conflict. So from 2004 to 2010, when the FARC was still active, it's estimated that 50,000 people were displaced and over 1,000 people were killed as a result of clashes between the ELN and FARC FARC, um, FARC guerrillas. But back then, these already involved you know, members of the 10th Front. In 2010, these two groups agreed to a truce, at least that, that's what appeared to have happened. So the, the ELN and the FARC uh, agreed to a truce and divided control over the lucrative eco- uh, criminal economies like cocaine trafficking and illegal gold mining. So now with these recent clashes, it appears that this truce has been broken and we may see another drawn out conflict between these two rival groups. Something I'm always interested in in conflicts, actually, especially especially with more and more, I guess you could say, sort of amateur enthusiasts almost, um, sort of covering them online. And a lot of these people are very, very knowledgeable, but one thing it's, it's often quite hard to gauge from media reporting is uh, what the norm is in these conflicts. And you were saying just then that uh, there's one uh, clash between ELN and FARC sort of affiliated groups in which 27 people were killed. Is this more than usual? Is this pretty regular? So sort of what I'm trying to, basically what I'm trying to ask is, how many people are usually involved in these clashes and has it increased recently or is this or is 27 dead quite a normal number for clashes in this area? Um, this area is different than most areas. Like um, across Colombia, there is smaller factions who sometimes face off with each other. So usually the casualty figures will be quite low and compared to what mm. you see in the Middle East, for example. Um, but this particular area that I'm talking about is, uh, like I said, the border area between Colombia and Venezuela, which is... Um, very sparsely populated and um, um, the security forces have a limited presence here and um, these groups can have a sort of a safe haven in Venezuela which has made them much larger than the factions you see elsewhere in Colombia so in this area you do see quite uh, heavy casualty figures but it is it is not that common that large groups face off with each other. Usually the skirmishes are between smaller cells. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Aaron, you mentioned uh, the different groups operating in Colombia. Uh, the the areas that these groups operate in, is it, you know, are they expanding the areas of operation or is it, uh, you know, are these groups operating in areas that they've always operated in? All right, so um, this area is uh, very important for guerrilla groups. It has been for a long time, mainly because uh, uh, you know this this area is the epicenter of production for coca crops. So Norte de Santander is kind of the epicenter of cocaine production in uh, Colombia, and Colombia is then again the largest cocaine produ- producer in the world. Now that's not to say that you know, coca isn't produced anywhere else in Colombia because most of the country's territory is very fertile for that particular crop. But, um, you know, it's an ideal place because the border is very porous. There's, there's, it's far away from from um, the rest of the country, so it's harder for security forces to reach. Uh, drugs, people, uh, weapons can flow easily across the border. Um, groups such as the ELN um, have kind of a safe haven in Venezuela, so they are... Uh, largely based there as well um, you know one example I can give you that gives you a, an image of this area is um, in October last year uh, 180 Colombian soldiers were held hostage during a coca eradication operation in Norte de Santander and these were not held hostage by guerrillas but by up to 600 coca growers who were you know armed with machetes and these these farmers, these coca growers, they claim that the hostage taking was intended as a protest against the Colombian government for failing to help them uh, substitute coca crops for legal ones. And all the soldiers were eventually released, but this incident kind of shows what type of area this is, where the government is very absent and you know, people are poor and they're forced to grow coca either by threat of violence from traffickers or by sheer economic necessity caused by you know, a lack of alternatives. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, it's an important region for these guerrilla groups. But, um, yeah, I do want to make it clear that besides this particular area of the Colombian-Venezuela border, 
<clears throat> the conflict in Colombia is nationwide. So, uh, you know, whilst the ELN has a strong presence in Venezuela, they also, you know, they're, they're fighting the tent front in the north of Colombia and, and on the border with Venezuela, but they're also fighting Clan Golfo in, in the south of Colombia. You know, Clan Golfo, I haven't really talked about much, but they basically uh, uh, control territory, for, territory from Medellin to the Caribbean Sea, so they have a really strong presence as well. The FARC is spread out across Colombia as well. Um, so the, the conflict takes place nationwide and if you look at uh, you know the ELN besides those two conflicts that they're involved in they also recently launched a terror campaign targeting the uh, Colombian government so we have seen dozens of attacks already this year against um, Colombian police stations Colombian military bases and they're not just based in 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 the north of Colombia but uh, these occur everywhere so, um, yeah, to answer your question, uh, there's always been uh, a strong presence of these groups across the country. Uh, just this particular uh, clash between uh, the FARC dissidents and the ELN is taking place on the border between Colombia and Venezuela, which is, you know, particularly important for them. Cheers for that, Aaron. That's, uh, I've noticed quite a few similarities. I don't know anything about South American conflicts, but it's quite a few similarities in what you're saying about sort of the smaller cell structure and the safe havens across borders. I think there's a lot of conflicts across the world where you'll see the same sort of concept um, being quite a dominant factor. So we'll come back to your second conflict later and I'll just keep going around. So we'll kind of move on to Virage covering Africa. So uh, which two conflicts, Virage, are you sort of looking to cover in this in this round table and which one are you going to do first? There have been a few co- uh, conflicts in Africa that uh, have caught the media's attention, uh, such as Ethiopia. Uh, and there's also the underreported conflict, which is uh, in the Central African Republic. Um, <clears throat> there's also the ongoing conflict in Eastern DRC, uh, where you have a number of rebel groups operating. Um, but the two conflicts that I want to be talking about today uh, in this uh, podcast are uh, Mozambique, in northern Mozambique, the insurgency, and also more broadly in West Africa too. So there has been an ongoing insurgency in Mozambique since uh, 2017, when a group uh, locally known as Al-Shabaab uh, launched uh, attacks on police. Uh, and soon after this, these attacks, uh, local security forces, they launched an operation uh, which forced the group uh, deeper into uh, more forested areas, uh, more remote areas. Uh, and this group then started to uh, attack uh, villages which are often uh, in isolated areas, difficult to reach areas uh, where there is little government presence. So since 2017, we've seen this conflict unfold in uh, Cabo Delgado province, which is uh, close to the Tanzanian border. And it's uh, an underdeveloped re- uh, region of the country, uh, one that has also been politically excluded as well from the central government. So there are plenty of, sort of grievances that uh, people in the, in the region harbor against the government, central government. How is the relationship between Al-Shabaab and Mozambique and Islamic State, how has this maybe changed over the past years and how may it change going forwards? Is, is the relationship quite strong? Is it quite, does ISIS, very, is it very much a loose relationship, more of an affiliation or is it a close coordination? So Al-Shabaab, Al- Al- uh, locally also known as Al-Sunnah, um, they pledged allegiance to ISIS, uh, I think it was in 2019. Mm. Um, so... It's not, a, you know, it's not like what we've seen in the Middle East uh, where ISIS... So it's a local insurgency that uh, pledges allegiance to ISIS. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we have seen uh, quite a few claims uh, by ISIS over the last... Uh, especially this year, I'd say. Uh, there, have definitely been, there has definitely been an increase in uh, claims by ISIS, mm. uh, not just in northern Mozambique, but also in, in the DRC, where the ADF also pledged allegiance to ISIS. Um, but there haven't been any reports of, um, uh, you know, for example, ISIS sending in mm. uh, fighters from the Middle East to train fighters in northern Mozambique. Um, so for now, not much is known about how you know strong or how direct the relationship is. Um, all that we know is that uh, this is a local insurgency uh, with the group maybe having local goals. I was going to say one thing I've noticed with um, sort of local insurgencies that have pledged allegiance to Islamic State is yes, they in some cases such as Islamic State, Khorasan Province, and Afghanistan, they have received in varying levels depending on the time in question, they have received a fair bit of support. Mm. But 
generally speaking, they often reflect local issues. So as a result, their primary concern is local issues and the broader sort of uh, the broader international strategy, perhaps of ISIS, often isn't so strongly reflected in these affiliated groups such as Al Shabaab or groups yeah. you may see in Asia as well. So yeah, that sort of aligns with what I've seen in other conflicts. Mm. So I believe last year I saw, um, you know, in the news in Cabo Delgado province, there was a city being overrun by these insurgents. Was that Al-Shabaab? And, and how did that kind of uh, end? Because I remember, you know, they took over the city pretty much. But what happened after that? Yeah, so the they attacked Palma Town. Uh, that was last year. And uh, local security forces were overwhelmed during this attack. Uh, the attack was quite, uh, you know, well-planned. Uh, it was also multi-pronged, so the the attackers they used a number of different weapons, uh, and they attacked from a number of different directions as well. Uh, and uh, there was a South African mercenary group uh, operating in the region uh, at that time, which played a crucial role in sort of uh, slowing down the attack mm-hmm. uh, and also protecting, uh, you know, quite a few civilians uh, and also helping with the evacuation of civilians. Um, what was the objective there? Just they t- took over the city, but did they have an objective with that? So I believe uh, I think they they may have wanted to uh, attack or even take over the LNG gas project site, right? Which they were unsuccessful in doing. Okay. So how did they actually attack the city? Then was that a sign of them growing in strength, or was it more just an opportunistic attack taking advantage of? a weak security forces presence like is it something that we should look out for going forward do you think they can do it again or not so much so we have seen towards the end of last year um, the intervention of Rwandan security forces uh, that's the police and army uh, and we've also seen SADC uh, uh, deploy a force which has so far helped uh, sort of drive out the insurgents from Palma town for example uh, these forces have also t- taken control of Musimboa de Praia and uh, also uh, another town uh, just uh, close to nearby, mostly in de Praia, um, which was previously held by um, these insurgents. Uh, I believe it was called Awas. And uh, so with foreign support, we have seen uh, local security forces you know, benefit from that. We've seen uh, towards the end of last year, especially uh, fewer attacks carried out you know, in certain districts, uh, especially near the coast. But having said that, recently we've seen you know, an increased activity around uh, uh, in western areas of uh, Cabo Delgado province, uh, and including in the neighboring province in Niasa province. Uh, we've also seen increased activity in like sort of southwestern areas of the province and um, around a town called Nangade, which is uh, close to the Tanzanian border in Cabo Delgado province. Uh, so they have demonstrated that resiliency uh, and, uh, well, while a number of their leaders have been captured, uh, it's unclear how this will affect the group going forward. Um, of course, as you know, covering the Middle East, uh, uh, radical, these Islamist groups, uh, you know, says Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. they they don't really depend on leaders. You know, they, they prepare for the eventuality that these leaders will be killed. So they are um, uh, resilient in that way. Uh, it's also a very decentralized group, uh, Al-Shabaab, uh, in northern Mozambique. So uh, I think this is helping them with uh, remaining resilient. Mm. Uh, so I think based of based on this, you know, what we've seen uh, this year, especially since January, uh, we've seen that this group is, uh, you know, capable still. And uh, we've also had reports of. Um, the SADC force being under-equipped and undermanned, which is undoubtedly affecting, uh, you know, their operations. And because uh, Al-Shabaab have, you know, inc- sort of expanded their area of operation, I think this is also have stretching, you know, uh, capabilities on the ground of security forces. Uh, so I think this this is something uh, to watch out for this year. Cheers, Raj. So I'll have a bit of input now from my own region which is sort of middle east and and south asia and obviously this is a this is a region with a fair few conflicts in it and a lot of these conflicts are actually quite well covered but uh, well covered and they're often covered quite broadly but the coverage itself is often quite superficial and as is the case not just in the middle east but in all conflicts these conflicts are, inc- are often eye-wateringly complex you know there's it's they're often i think 
for the casual observer, it's very tempting to break these conflicts down into blocks that we can understand. In other words, we oversimplify these conflicts so that we can better interpret what's going on and better understand it. Whereas in reality, you really do have to spend quite some time reading into the local dynamics and whatever it may be to try and get a slightly better understanding of these conflicts at least. So you may be surprised to hear that the conflict, the underreported conflict, which I've one of the ones which I've put forwards in this this roundtable is Afghanistan, which is a conflict which we've heard a huge amount about in the news recently. It's been, you know, the Western Western countries have been at war in Afghanistan for just uh, 20 years with the recent departure. And it's pretty much in the news almost every day in some cases. But what I want to focus more on Afghanistan is not so much the underreported side of it, it's more aspects of it that seem to have been overlooked somewhat or the full magnitude of them hasn't quite been understood. So since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan in August 2021, it's been it's been quite uh, it's been quite interesting watching exactly what the Taliban do because this is complete almost uh, in a contemporary perspective this is complete unknown territory now the Taliban have changed a lot since uh, before two thousand and one when the Taliban had held power in Afghanistan it's a very different group it's gone through very different experiences it's almost I guess you could say it's a different generation of fighters albeit the commanders are often very much the same so what we're seeing in Afghanistan now is is it's hard to actually predict what's going to happen going forwards but I've got a few observations that I've prepared for this which I think people may want to know about or at least should be keeping an eye on. So despite the Taliban having it's probably safe to say that Afghanistan now is more secure than it was before the Taliban took over. However, other aspects such as food security have uh, have definitely decreased. So much more poverty in Afghanistan than we saw before and it's also uh, for certain ethnic groups or tribal groups, for example, their security situation has changed significantly. So perhaps uh, individuals or tribal groups that were traditionally opposed to the Taliban are now suddenly in a very dangerous situation. So to say that everyone in Afghanistan is more secure since August is uh, oversimplification in itself. Mm. But what I'm saying is, generally speaking, there's much less fighting in Afghanistan than there was before, which again makes it strange that I've included this in a conflict to watch. But there is still fighting in Afghanistan, and this is generally involving two groups other than the Taliban. So the first is the NRF, otherwise known as the National Resistance Front. And this is a term that's been given to like a loose collection of militias, generally centered around the son of the late of a former high-profile Afghan militia commander called Ahmad Shah Massoud. And his son has led his own is, is in control of an anti-Taliban militia now, which is based around the Panjshir Baghlan region in central Afghanistan. Are these from Afghanistan or yeah, is, are these, are. Uh, you know, guided by Iranian interest or whatever interests there are in, the, in the, that area? <laughs> Depends who you ask, but um, I think a lot of people have tried to delegitimize them, saying that they are foreign. The Taliban, for example, have accused uh, Tajikistan of funding these. Okay. And this is where it gets a bit complicated because ethnic Panjshiris and ethnic Tajik fighters are traditionally opposed to the largely pa- Pashtun. I must emphasize it's largely, not entirely Pashtun Taliban. So, yes, there's been accusations that they've been backed by foreign groups, but generally I think it's best to look at these NRF militias as a an organic Afghan militia movement that's mm-hmm. been traditionally opposed to the Taliban for a number of years, even before the Western forces intervened in the first place. So these militias have formed, and straight after the seizure of Kabul, there was limited activity. And when I, what I mean by limited activity is perhaps IED attacks on isolated vehicles, maybe a shooting of a Taliban fighter in a major city or in a district centre, and occasional clashes in rural areas of Panjshir province, Baghlan province, and even Badakhshan province. So it's pretty limited activity, and it's uh, it's rarely making uh, the news, let alone making as let alone international news. It rarely makes Afghan news. So it's the NRF. I don't want to overstate how significant they've been. Their online campaign has been quite impressive in some respects, in that they give off the impression that they are a very legitimate militia force. Whereas, in, like, it's again, it's very hard to actually, as an outsider looking in on this conflict, it's very hard to get a full understanding of exactly how how much impact these militias have. But what I've gathered from my own research, again, as an outsider looking in, is that the role of these, that perhaps the the scale and the the threat that these fighters pose to the Taliban at the moment is quite limited. With that said, the recent months have not been traditional fighting season in Afghanistan, with the remote mountainous regions being he- under heavy snow in the winter. Fighting traditionally has calmed down. In recent years, this hasn't actually been the case. We've often we've seen fighting generally continue through the winter. But it's possible that perhaps the NRF are biding their time for the summer months when they can carry out larger operations against the Taliban and when the snow starts to clear in their regions. So this is certainly a theme, I think, that we need to be keeping an eye on Afghanistan. Now, earlier I mentioned there's two groups responsible for fighting Afghanistan, the first being the NRF, the second is Islamic State. So Islamic State have always been had a presence in Afghanistan. It's always been a very complicated group in Afghanistan. Similar in some respects to what you said about al-Shabaab earlier. Um, 
in Mozambique in that they are Islamic State, yes, but they are more they're they're more of an affiliate group rather than an extension of ISIS, if that makes sense. So they have their own local concerns, they have their own issues, they have their own objectives, they have their own strategy. However, in the past, I would say they've definitely received more support from central Islamic State in Syria and Iraq than Al Shabaab have. There has been quite a lot of coordination in the past, and it's deemed now as we as the Taliban take over that Islamic State is looking towards Khorasan province, as they call it, or generally speaking, Afghanistan, Pakistan. That central IS is looking to this region to try and exert its influence a bit more and perhaps make the most of what is currently quite a weak Taliban government. Is there something specific about this region? Is there, you know, commercial interest there or? I'm not so sure it's about the commercial side of it. I think a lot of people overstate perhaps the mining value that we can get from Afghanistan or the natural resources. Mm -hmm. And whilst there is certainly natural resources for mining there, I think from an ISIS perspective, it's more about having territory which is very which has very very little security forces influence from foreign forces or local forces where isis can develop its own mini caliphate i guess you could call it harbor fighters perhaps host a training camp or something along these lines mm-hmm. and whilst at the moment islamic state are in fairly frequent clashes with the taliban the taliban have recently carried out a um i guess you could call it a counterinsurgency operation it's quite strange insurgents <laughs> carrying out counterinsurgency but they carried out their own operation against ISIS, attempting to purge their own ranks of ISIS sympathizers and any local commanders that are affiliated with ISIS. And this seems to have limited success, perhaps only immediate success, in that there has been a reduction in attacks in recent months. So, you know, again, it might seem strange that I'm saying that this is a theme to watch if there's been a reduction. But my suspicion is that these, this operation has actually perhaps made it worse. So, yes, they've denied, they maybe killed off quite a few Islamic State fighters or arrested a few of their commanders. But in the process of doing so, I think they've alienated quite a lot of people where ISIS has typically had sympathy. So, for example, they've targeted uh, Salafists living around the Jalalabad region. We've seen a lot of killings of um, of what are often uh, uh, claimed ISIS sympathizers, ISIS militants, whereas local reports that surface online on social media often dispute this claim that they were just civilians killed during Taliban raids. So again, Taliban are now basically repeating mistakes that various occupying forces have made in the past of civilian casualties, heavy-handed mm-hmm. approach to counterinsurgency is, ma- is creating a breeding ground for anti-Taliban. So NRF and Islamic State activity, at the moment, quite limited. It's, it's, fairly, uh, it's, it's fairly subdued. Islamic State has carried out some major attacks in population centres, so that's much less subdued. But both the NRF and ISIS, I do think, still have the potential and the capacity to increase separations in the summer months going forward this year. What were some of the things that surprised you about Afghanistan after the Taliban took over? Maybe maybe not just you, but other analysts that were maybe completely wrong about what would happen. Because I, I remember watching that and mm. thinking, I have no idea what's next. No. So, so what were some of the predictions and what, what? I think that's a very good question. I think... Pretty, I think there's a few analysts who I would say are experts in Afghanistan who perhaps saw this coming. But generally speaking, with this country being so difficult for outsiders to really gain a, a complete understanding of, I think a lot of people were caught uh, caught by surprise. And to an extent, I was too. I don't think I think the whole seizure of Kabul, the whole seizure of Afghanistan by the Taliban, took a lot of people by surprise. The mm-hmm. speed with which it happened, everyone knew it was coming. I don't think anyone thought it would happen that quick. There was a couple of people saying that they did, and sure, they probably did. But it was, I think on, as a whole, I think the analyst community was generally surprised how quick it happened. And since then, it's been surprise after surprise. What I was saying earlier is, earlier is this is very much unforeseen territory, not just in Afghanistan, but also uh, internationally. The Taliban have been in control of Afghanistan before. Yes, it's important to note. But it's a very different Afghanistan. It's a very different Taliban and it's a very different Afghanistan now than it was back then. So... Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. A big surprise for me, though, I think, to answer your question, a big surprise to me was I anticipated there to be more resistance to the Taliban from um, largely non-passion groups in the north. So we have actually seen some of this already, and I think it's starting to manifest itself now. But one thing I thought we'd see more of immediately was groups that were perhaps lightly affiliated with the Taliban against the government now deciding, right, government's out of the way. We We want our own local concessions now and there has been a bit of that so perhaps you know this is actually still happening there has been a bit of that but the taliban have generally managed to retain retain their forces there's been some there was outbreak uh, outbreak of fighting in faria province recently in the north so that undermines what i'm saying a little bit but i am surprised how the taliban have managed to to some extent rein their fighters in with that said there's more and more cases of individual fighters who have been brought up on conflict all they know is conflict to an extent there's more these are they're getting bored of this um, this kind of peacetime army sort of mentality that the Taliban have and we're, and I, I expect at some point that commanders may find themselves 
now that they're not in a state of war, I, I find that ta- certain individual Taliban commanders whose loyalty to the central Taliban leadership is perhaps dubious at times, I do suspect going forwards we may see defections or at least, not if not full defections, at least tensions, maybe bouts of infighting. So that's something that I expect to see going forwards. And I'm slightly surprised there's not been more of already, although there has been a fair bit, to be mm-hmm. fair. And um, one last aspect of Afghanistan that I think is really overlooked, actually, is um, the relationship. Now that the USA and its and their allies have left, the relationship with Afghanistan and its neighboring states. Because at first, countries such as Iran, Pakistan, China, and Russia were generally unified strategically by their opposition to the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. None of one, none of them, these, a lot of these states had their own issues of how they want to approach Afghanistan, but generally they could agree on the fact that they were opposed to the concept of the USA being there. Mm-hmm. And now that USA has left, this has been quite interesting. We're starting to see more, not tension, but more differences in opinion, it's particularly in the Central Asia region bordering, bordering Afghanistan. So this is something that I think we should be watching going forwards. And it's, but at the same time, it's something that I don't want to over-exaggerate the potential of escalation. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So at the moment, we're seeing tensions between Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and the Taliban. Uzbekistan have actually been quite keen to work with the Taliban since the takeover and have an economic interest in Afghanistan, such as an alleged uh, plan to build a train link, which seems quite ambitious right now, as well as a supply of things such as electricity. So Uzbekistan is actually keen to work with the Taliban, but at the same time, Uzbekistan is also heavily reluctant to return all the vehicles and all the planes that landed in Afghanistan during the takeover of the country when security forces retreated out of Afghanistan. And this has created a point of tension with the Taliban as well, and the Taliban have been, in times, quite openly threatening their neighbouring states, essentially saying, stay in your lane, and neighbouring states haven't taken too kindly to this. Same goes for Tajikistan, who have had a much more incendiary relationship with the Taliban since August 2021, not helped by the fact that a lot of the anti-Taliban forces are ethnic Tajiks living in Afghanistan. So as a result, a lot of people in Afghanistan uh, in Tajikistan have a natural affinity with the anti-Taliban militia. And this has put a bit of pressure on the Tajik government as well. And more recently still, we've seen the alleged reports that the Taliban have started massing forces in the Badakhshan province in the north of Afghanistan on the border with Tajikistan. We've seen reports that the Taliban are massing fighters here. There's a lot of reports along these sort of lines in Afghanistan from this region, with it being a remote region, these numbers are often over-exaggerated. But nonetheless, these allegations still highlight there's a very it's not a strong relationship right now between the Taliban and T- T- Tajikistan, as well as other Central Asian states, but more so Tajikistan. So it's definitely something to watch. Any sort of escalation and pressure from Russia, perhaps on the Taliban or even on Tajikistan, to stay in their lanes and try and just work it out. Because no one really wants an escalation right now involving uh, neighbouring states, including the Taliban. They don't want that. Tajikistan doesn't want that. So I don't think this is going to escalate into full-blown war, but politically it is an interesting thing nonetheless. And uh, I remember the Taliban used to you know, control large parts of the opium production mm. in Afghanistan. Now that they control the country, is that sort of a main way of funding themselves? Because you mentioned the economic situation being quite bad. Yeah. So I could imagine that being appealing. Yeah, drugs and the money that the Taliban take from it in Afghanistan has always been really complicated issue in that it's not re- there's not really an answer that applies to the whole country very much uh, the relationship between the Taliban and drugs very much depends on the commander and the district in question mm-hmm. so it varies so we've seen certain commanders completely ban it and others perhaps unofficially allowing it uh, whether this be because they profit from it or because they know that local farmers profit hugely from it and will struggle to grow other crops whatever their reasoning may be so at the moment there's a lot of calls to refer to the Taliban as a narco insurgency and I just don't Personally, this is my opinion, again, as an outsider looking in, I can't stress this enough. My opinion is that I think it's wrong to call them narco-insurgency because this essentially uh, suggests that they are primarily about drugs, that they are defined by their relationship with drugs. Yeah. And while some people would choose to define the Taliban as a group with a relationship with opium, I think the Taliban have quite a, have more ways of funding themselves than just drugs. And now that they're in charge of the country, they've got things such as taxation and even foreign donations if they start coming through. And the drugs have just, I'd say drugs more supplement the Taliban income than are the core of it, if that makes sense. Right. So yeah. it's, uh, yes, I do think now they've taken over, they will serve to profit much more from it. Whether or not they'll ban it to try and gain international legitimacy or not is, is yet to be seen. And it, whether or not they can implement that in the first place is also yet to be seen. We saw during NATO operations in Afghanistan, uh, an edict banning opium production was almost impossible to enforce. And it was hard to... It was hard to sort of win the hearts and minds, to borrow a term, while simultaneously banning one of the most lucrative crops the country can offer. So it's it's a tricky, I think the Taliban have got a tricky uh, decision to make there. Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting to see that going forwards. 
Hi guys, it's Philip from Intelligence Fusion here. If you're enjoying this episode of The Roundtable, then you might be interested in the latest report we've put together on the Intelligence Fusion website, tracking armed conflict using threat intelligence software. We've taken a look at why organizations that operate in areas of conflict might need to track armed conflict to keep their people, their assets, and their operations safe and how they can do this by using threat intelligence software. We've also explored how we can track the causes of conflict too, so you can monitor the signs that might lead to potential conflict in the future. If you're interested, then check it out on the Intelligence Fusion website. You'll find it at intelligencefusion.co.uk forward slash insights. So Alan, on the subject of drugs, I know you wanted to speak about Mexico and the drugs cartels and the conflict between them and the government today. So same question to you that you just asked me, I guess. How exactly, just to introduce your topic, I guess, how reliant are these cartels on their funding from drugs? You know, is this their core funding or is it is it similar to the Taliban and it just supplements their income? So I think drugs definitely play a larger role in Mexico. Um, of course, the cartels that, that do exist and the larger ones, they have, you know, they have had the possibility to create this power through money earned by by. Uh, by drugs you know it started with marijuana then it went to cocaine now more recently uh, you know you have the proliferation of synthetic drugs which you know allows these cartels to not no longer be reliant on too many foreign actors you don't have to rely on the colombians for example for cocaine you can just produce it in mexico the only thing is you need precursors but you know you have uh, you know, in Jalisco, you have the Jalisco New Generation Cartel kind of piggybacked on this uh, on development of synthetic drugs, and they they really became powerful because of methamphetamine and then synthetic drugs such as that. And they control major ports in Jalisco where they can just get precursors for it. So, so that is the main income stream uh, because if you see the type of weaponry, the type of vehicles they have. You cannot get that from, you know, simple, simple avocado extortion. That being said, um, more and more as these cartels grow more powerful, they have, you know, different income streams. So right now groups are fighting over dozens of different illegal markets. It's not just drugs. It's not just human trafficking, but it's also agriculture. So I mentioned avocados, which is actually, I understated it, but it's actually a huge income stream, um, Limes are similar, uh, berry berry farming. Lots of this is taking place in, in states like Michoacan where you know farmers have taken up arms to defend themselves against the car- these cartels, but then these you know these farmers eventually evolve into vigilante paramilitaries who then start trafficking trafficking drugs themselves. And so you have this sort of um, continuous like you said with with Afghanistan, it's so hard to to keep track of everything that's going on, you know, there's splintering groups, then there's new groups being created, then there's alliances that that fall apart the next day. Uh, that's constantly happening in Mexico, but um, definitely the income streams have been, you know, diversified, uh, mining, tourism, you know, anything you can think of basically that earns you money, the cartels want to be involved. So we've seen reports of uh, shootings in Cancun, for example, which is a popular tourist spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this related to drug trade or? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's hard to tell from times because, um, you know, like you said, from an outsider looking in, um, oftentimes the the cartels that are involved aren't reported, even if it's known to the local news reporters. I'm not sure why they do this. Actually, it might be you know fear of of uh, retaliation, but it might also just be um, a policy to to not give them more attention than they already are getting. Um, so it's it's hard to tell at at times who is you know causing this shooting in Cancun, for example, but always there is a criminal cell that is usually um, you know related to a, a larger cartel, um, especially in the cities. It's hard to tell because they all have different cells, and usually uh, a bunch of groups are fighting on behalf of these cartels. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely related to drugs and drug trafficking. Or in, in cases like Cancun, where there's major, uh, you know, hotel chains, restaurants, you know, the whole tourism business, you see a lot of extortion, um, extortion of restaurant owners, but also extortion of construction companies that, that build these hotels. Um, and if you look far enough, there's always at the end a cartel involved. Mm. Um, yeah. 
So, Aaron, obviously his conflict's a bit different to, you know, fighting in Afghanistan or in Iraq or Syria or whatever it may be. So, on the ground then, what does this conflict between the cartels and the government actually look like? You know, what incidents characterize it? What sort of tactics characterize this conflict? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Because I think Mexico, even though it's uh, most people wouldn't consider it a conflict, uh, it's it's not a war zone. But that depends who you ask, because the previous president, uh, Felipe Calderon, he declared war on the cartels, and then you could call it a war. Mm. But this current president uh, in Mexico, he declared peace. So now they have peace. But these are just words to describe the exact same um, conflict, essentially. Um, so what you, you have in, in Mexico is a kind of a process of paramilitarization in which different groups seek to wipe territories clean of their rivals. And... Um, in certain areas, there is an absence of violence, but this is often due to the fact that there is a monopoly on drug trafficking or an agreement between rival groups in a certain territory, such as the state of Durango. Um, so every state in Mexico is quite different, um, depending on which cartels are involved. Um, if you look at a state, for example, Michoacan, you don't see just cartel versus cartel or cartel versus state. Uh, it's much more complex than that, so... Like I said, you have a lot of splintering and alliances, and um, and and then you have these self-defense groups, which are called autodefensas, which are basically vigilante paramilitaries. Um, and uh, you know, for example, in Michoacan, you have one of the larger cartels, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, um, which are fighting a band of different criminal groups that are partly, uh, you know, autodefensas. They are partly cartels themselves. Um, depends on how you how you define it. So, you have the United Cartels who are who are fighting the the CGNG, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. But these United Cartels are uh, you know a bunch of of different different armed groups that constantly evolve and and sometimes fight between each other. Um, the state is 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 an interesting concept in Mexico because the state isn't absent. Like it's not um, you know. Although Michoacan, for example, is a very um, faraway region where security forces are have difficulty getting to, um, the Mexican state is actually quite powerful, and the state and the military are very much participants in like this negotiation for political power. So, for example, uh, the Sinaloa cartel is believed to have penetrated the federal government uh, in the previous administration of Felipe Calderon, where his head of security was allegedly on the payroll of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, but other cartels may infiltrate state governments and then these, you know, different governments are controlled by different cartels, which sometimes causes a military to face off with state police in some cases. So um, the state is very much involved in this whole process. Um, okay, so you mentioned self-defense groups that are operating against these cartels. Uh, are there any connections between these groups and, uh, you know, political parties, for example? Ooh, um, well, the, the cartels are definitely heavily involved in, in, in politics, even though, you know, that would define them as terrorist organizations in a way. Um, they are, uh, yeah, let, let's not go there because, uh, you know, the definition of that is hard. But um, they do definitely fund political parties. And, you know, in, in Mexico, a drug boss can also be the mayor. Um, and in terms of um, self-defense groups, uh, it's interesting and it's, Hard to know what's real and what's not. Um, like I mentioned this group before, the United Cartels, which are a grouping of smaller cartels, which you can also define as self-defense groups. It, the, the, the line between a self-defense group and a cartel is very slim because this, you start off being farmers taking up arms and then you get funded maybe by another cartel who is also against your opponent. And... Eventually, you start trafficking drugs and, you know, what's a self-defense group at this point? And some cartels who are actually really, like, deeply involved in criminal activity, they'll rebrand themselves as self-defense forces just to appeal more legitimate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, to answer your question, involvement in local politics, you, you could see it really clearly last year during the local elections. Uh, I think there were more than 70 politicians assassinated that year. Okay. So, um yeah, uh, it's it's all connected. Mm. But how exactly it is connected, that's really difficult to figure out. 
So uh, thanks, Aaron. That's uh, quite an interesting conflict by sounds of it. And it's it's funny. I was listening to you, and I was thinking there's quite a lot of parallels, just in, uh, conceptual parallels, I guess you could say, in what you were saying with other legitimate kind of conventional conflicts that we've seen elsewhere. So whilst perhaps a lot of people wouldn't characterise that as a war, I think it certainly is a has a lot of similarities, regardless mm-hmm. of what it's characterised, what what it's termed as. So we'll move on to our last conflict that we want to look at. Obviously, there's loads that we could have looked at, but um, you know, just in the interest of time, we've just picked a few. And that's over to Viraj, who you said you're going to be looking at West Africa, was it? That's right. Um, so in West Africa, uh, we have two main uh, Islamist uh, groups that operate there. Uh, so it's uh, AQIM and ISIS, or groups affiliated with uh, both of these groups. Can you just uh, quickly say what those acronyms are for anyone that's not sure? So uh, that's Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. So over the past couple of years, especially, we've seen uh, the jihadist threat really uh, sort of expand in West Africa. Uh, more specifically towards uh, the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, so we have seen, for example, you know, even in Mali, uh, we've seen, especially in 2020 and onwards, we've seen uh, an increase in attacks in areas west and sort of northwest uh, of Bamako, the capital. Uh, we've also seen um, the the number of attacks uh, increase in Burkina Faso, in neighboring Burkina Faso. Um, and we've also seen uh, just uh, this year, in fact, uh, we've seen a few attacks carried out in northern Benin uh, by groups uh, affiliated with uh, Al-Qaeda. And uh, in the, I think it was last year as well, we've seen... Uh, you know, a number of attacks carried out in uh, Northern Ivory Coast as well. So there has definitely been, you know, an uptick in uh, activity by uh, especially, you know, groups linked to Al-Qaeda. Uh, so that's that's a huge concern at the moment. So I recently um, uh, saw an interview with the Dutch uh, general, uh, general for the armed forces of, of the Netherlands. Mm. And he wrote a book uh, called The Climate General. I haven't read it yet, but um, uh, it's a very interesting concept. And he he gives us an example, uh, West Africa. And the example is that due to climate change, uh, or at least change in temperature, farmers mm-hmm. are moving into other farmers' territory in this area. Do you see that as well? Or Yeah, we have seen... Uh I mean, this is uh, something that I think they mentioned with the Syrian crisis as well, you know, Mm -hmm. the role that climate change has played. Mm -hmm. But it's also similar in like areas in in northern Nigeria uh, and uh, how herders, you know, there have been more clashes between herders and farmers because, you know, they're competing over resources uh, such as water. Uh, And definitely northern regions, you know, of Ivory Coast, northern regions of Benin and, and Nigeria too. These are areas which have been... Well, there, there's a lot of grievances held by the, the underdeveloped areas. Uh, there's not a lot of govern, government presence, so there are grievances. These grievances are, you know, exacerbated by climate change, uh, and uh, it's something that these groups can certainly, or they they probably will, uh, sort of take advantage of. Mm-hmm. I guess the the media coverage has also been so focused on COVID that, you know, these things get. Uh, looked over yeah and there's also been uh, lots of you know political instability so we've seen coups in guinea uh, we've seen two coups in mali in recent years and also in, you know more recently in burkina faso and i think an attempted coup in guinea bissau which is i think it just shows uh, you know the levels of frustration that people have you know with their with the governments and how they view these governments as being incompetent or uh, you know not able to, uh, in in Burkina Faso's case, uh, sort of, uh, you know, take control of the situation or, you know, the growing insecurity mm-hmm. situation in the country and uh, really, you know, put a stop to these attacks carried out by these jihadist groups. Um, you know, and also in countries, you know, such as Nigeria and uh, Ghana, we've seen, uh, you know, prominent anti-government sort of protests carried out, you know, over, over the past couple of years. Uh, you know, we saw the NSARS protest in Nigeria, which, you know, although they were directed, you know, towards this SARS unit of the Nigerian police, um, they were also sort of driven by, you know, high levels of unemployment and, you know, really this just generally a lot of anger towards the Nigerian government. And in Ghana, we've seen uh, the, you know, fix the country movement uh, over the past year, you know, they've held protests in the capital. 
so there's you know growing concern with uh, you know uh, unemployment and yeah I think this is this is something that we have to the economic side of it is something that is uh, a worry. Mm-hmm. I often find major instability is often triggered by a small catalyst, and you know the more like obviously therefore instability is more unlikely if there's more catalysts. And in what in the region you were just talking about there in in these countries. More and more catalysts seem to be featuring every day, whether that be economic incompetence from the government, corruption, insecurity, water insecurity, whatever Mm. it may be. And as countries acquire more and more potential catalysts, suddenly you start to realise the the potential for like a small protest, you know, a seemingly benign protest in a city centre to suddenly become violent clashes and rioting and then whatever may come after that suddenly becomes higher and higher as more of these catalysts just build up more and more uh, possibilities more and more frustrations build up it's yeah. it's not hard to see how it can escalate from there because a lot of the time it seems like it come out of nowhere yeah. but for analysts who have been covering these countries for some time these you know you've been watching these issues build up and up and up it's it's almost not a surprise when it finally does clash I do think that's a great topic for our next podcast because so, of yeah. course when you look at uh, Kazakhstan for example yeah, yeah. I just read gas price increase but you yeah. know everything behind it you know nice. Colombia had major anti-government protests last year so I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens again. Mm, and so, yeah. yeah, of course, yeah. Africa, all the coups. Yeah, I, I was, think. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, uh, I, I do read a lot of Wagner involvement of, of Russian mercenaries yeah. in, in in these coups and also in the conflict conflicts in themselves. Uh, is that changing, or uh, how do you see that? So there are reports that uh, the you know the leader of the the coup in Burkina Faso that he had. Uh, I think he was trying to convince, you know, the the now deposed president to uh, deploy, uh, you know, Wagner mercenaries. So there is that element there, uh, and we also know that uh, you know hundred hundreds of Wagner mercenaries are now in Mali as well, um, and they they have taken you know over I think a base in in northern Mali which was previously held by uh, by France, who have you know on the day of recording this podcast have announced that they're going to withdraw from the region from mm-hmm. Mali sorry entirely uh, so yeah I think it's going to be over the next couple of months that they'll withdraw yeah and uh, it, yeah it's not just Mali it's also um, uh, their European allies um, uh, you know part of task force Takuba uh, which have been you know you know especially prominent you know with, with their activities around uh, the tribal area uh, between uh, the, the shared border area between Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Um, so, yeah, I think there, there's concern about where this could, you know, how this could develop now because, um, you know, while, you know, France have, they played a prominent role uh, in sort of countering this insurgency, while the situation hasn't improved too much, uh, they have built, you know, the capacity of some security forces. So with French forces withdrawing then, how does the... How does it impact the counterinsurgency effort? Is there going to be a lack of capabilities now? Is there going to be a lack of force, I guess you could say? Or is it going to be largely carry on seamlessly with local forces? Or Wagner mercenaries, mm. maybe. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, we have seen France being heavily involved in, you know, especially carrying out airstrikes. They've uh, killed a number of uh, leaders of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, uh, especially last year. Um, uh, so they, they have definitely played a prominent so military role, especially in that tri-border area between, you know, the shared border area between Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger. Um, and they've also helped build the capacity of local security forces, especially in that, you know, tri-border area. Um, we've seen with Wagner mercenaries, uh, you know, they've been involved in Mozambique, in Libya. They haven't been particularly successful. So I guess there is that concern about how competent they are really in Mali. But at the same time, we've seen uh, the transitional government, uh, we've seen reports of uh, them sort of uh, expre- expressing intent, at least, uh, to negotiate with uh, JNIM, which is a coalition of uh, Islamist groups that pledge allegiance to Al-Qaeda uh, in Mali. Um, and so, so yeah, we could see negotiations, negotiations now take place. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that does happen, then we could see the uh, need for, uh, you know, military operations, airstrikes, so reduce just a bit, uh, at least against uh, Al-Qaeda-linked groups, maybe. Uh, but I think in that tribal area, I think that that area could you know, certainly suffer. I know France have said that they'll continue their operations, uh, although uh, they'll reduce them. Uh, they'll still continue them until they fully withdraw from the country. Um but uh, yeah, after that, 
maybe we might just see you know ISIS sort of expand maybe uh, we have seen reports especially over the last well since the 1st of February we've seen lots of reports of uh, fighting between Jainim and uh, ISIS uh, in southern Mali uh, in the tribal area uh, and yeah maybe we could see more uh, this year at least um, more ISIS activity in the tribal areas and also in Niger maybe Cheers Raj so um last conflict for me then is again it's similar to Afghanistan and this is a major conflict that has actually been in the news a lot so the reason I've included it in this podcast and it's Yemen by the way before I carry on going the reason I've included it in this podcast is because in Yemen again much like Afghanistan there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of themes that seem to slip under the radar on the analysis a lot of media coverage analysis whatever it may be a lot of this focuses on immediate incidents so for example Saudi airstrikes targeted Sanaa or an IED going off, or even a drone strike targeting Saudi or the UAE more recently. And they often don't talk about perhaps the implications of this or even the cause of it, I guess, or what these events mean for the broader conflict. So the war in Yemen has been ongoing for quite some time now, and Saudi forces have also been heavily involved. But what we've seen recently, and quite dramatically as well, is drone attacks coming from Yemen targeting uh, very built-up areas in the UAE or in Dubai in particular, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi in particular. And these are carried out by Saudi drones and ballistic missiles. I think the Saudis at the time claimed they're carried out by Samad 3 drones, which have a longer range than the rest of the drones in their arsenal. So they are capable of hitting areas very far away from Yemeni territory. And a crashed, Yemeni, uh, a crashed Houthi drone that was found in Oman suggests that perhaps the route they're taking to get to the UAE is rather than going through Saudi and thus through layers of Saudi air defence, they may be going through Omani, uh, Omani airspace and moving up through Saudi to try and get to the UAE from there. Either way, regardless of the route and regardless of what munitions are being used, the Houthis have shown quite clearly to the world that they are capable of targeting the UAE. And this in itself is quite a recent development. There have been similar attacks throughout the previous years with the UAE, uh, when Houthis are targeted places such as, uh, as as Riyadh with drones and missiles and caused quite significant disruption. But this decision to target the UAE after weeks of threatening the UAE, months of threatening the UAE and months of threatening to target these sites comes as a bit of an escalation. It comes as a bit of a dramatic change in the conflict in that now the UAE, who have been... Um, looking to not disengage, but looking to reduce their involvement perhaps in the conflict, they suddenly find themselves in a position when they either back down in the face of Houthi aggression on their own soil, which would obviously make them look very weak and it's almost unthinkable, or they become more involved in the conflict. And one of the reasons I believe that drove these drone strikes recently was a recent offensive carried out by southern forces in Yemen against Houthi positions in around Marib province, which has actually had some limited success on the ground in, in capturing territory. So I'll provide a bit of context to this. In Yemen, you've got the Houthis, you've got the Yemeni government, and then you've got southern forces who are essentially a separatist force, I guess. And the southern forces are very heavily backed by the UAE. So in order to try and convince the UAE to stop backing this southern forces offensive, which was very successful at the time, uh, Houthis decided to target the UAE at the source. They decided to send drones straight to the UAE. And whilst this has had a significant impact on the uh, tourism industry, for example, and uh, in the UAE, it's not really changed their decision. A more concentrated, um, a more concentrated campaign against the UAE and Saudi, perhaps using Houthi drones and missiles, maybe could make a could force a decision from the UAE. But I find it hard to, I find it hard to imagine a major state such as the UAE backing down in the face of aggression. I imagine instead they'll probably improve their air defense systems, which they've already been doing relying on probably U.S. support in order to do so, and dig in, perhaps looking to try and support southern forces in Yemen, as well as the government forces, to try and bring about a further collapse of Houthi territory. About those air defense systems, do cities like Abu Dhabi and Dubai, do they have sort of an iron dome dome system, or do these rockets actually land, or drone strikes? So I'm not actually too sure about the specifics of the UAE air defense. I've spent most of my time looking at Saudi ones, so when the strikes came in the UAE, I was caught on the back foot a little bit. But um, generally speaking, they, they're not assigned per city, I think. They're more around borders and high-profile points. But yes, the UAE has got its own pretty, um, pretty sophisticated uh, air defense systems, and a lot of these drones are intercepted rather than landing. But we can see in Saudi Arabia, using that as a case study, Saudi Arabia intercepts drones on a near-weekly basis. They're very common, these attacks, often around places such uh, in the southern provinces. But again, 
the Houthis know that this is going to happen. The Houthis have seemingly an endless supply of drones and missiles. So the Houthis know that you can, if they launch enough, eventually one or two will get through. I think uh, it's almost there's a bit of a narrative that these air defences are completely impenetrable. It's just not the case. You can get drones and missiles through them. It's happened repeatedly in the Saudi border area, so there's no reason why it's not going to continue to happen in the UAE. So bearing in mind, it only takes one. So imagine one drone hitting the Burj Khalifa is quite a significant event. It would have a huge impact. So I think that's what the UAE, UAE are wary of. You know, they, Their defence now is very good, but they are already working on trying to improve it because, again, it would just take one drone. If they could fire 50 and one gets through, it's just that one that will all remember, not the 49 that were intercepted for obvious reasons. So, yes, it is a sophisticated air defence system across the entire country, but, again, this attack showed that there's definitely weaknesses in it. So we've seen uh, lots of reports uh, of uh, these sort of drone strikes, I guess you could call it, mm. uh, in Saudi Arabia. Is there a particular target that these drones, uh, you know, are targeting? Or yeah, it varies. But I would say if I had to, it's generally it's military airports, which often double up as civilian airports too, as well as the Saudi Aramco company, which has facilities in cities such as Jazan, close to the Yemeni border. Uh, these have been a common target, and they free and the Houthis also explicitly mention Aramco in a lot of their um a lot of their statements because the Houthis are very quick to claim these attacks all the time with quite in-depth details about what they targeted, what happened, whatever. Obviously, they, they provide their own narrative as to how many missiles were launched and how many landed. So, yeah, the main targets are generally military airfields. So the aviation sector gets uh, has receives quite a lot of attention from this because in Saudi Arabia, particularly in places like Abba and Kamas Mashayat, um, they these airports double up so you've got a civilian side of it but you've also got a military airfield very close by and uh, the Houthis tend to target both it's hard to tell because a lot of the time these missiles are intercepted in undisclosed locations so you don't exactly know which part of the airport it was targeting but in the past missiles have struck civilian areas they've caused civilian casualties so I imagine the airport in general is a target rather than solely military sites and uh, in Yemen itself uh, you know I remember uh, there was this huge um, what do you call it famine mm. Uh, is that still happening? Is it still because there was a blockade at some point? Yes. Is that is still going on? Yeah, the humanitarian situation in Yemen has just continued to deteriorate uh, week by week. It, it seems it's um, I don't know off the top of my head what the statistics are, so I'm not going to pretend. But the poverty statistics in Yemen are uh, very very poor, um, and it's just getting worse as the fighting goes on. Because the more as fighting intensifies, regardless of who's winning or losing, things such as supply chains bringing aid are getting uh, compromised quite heavily. Yes, there's a blockade as well. Both sides have accused each other of seizing aid shipments. You get it a lot in pro-government, pro-Yemeni government media of Houthis seizing aid shipments and distributing it among their own fighters. And sometimes this is actually true. Sometimes it's just uh, it's just embellishment of what's going on. It's Again, it's very hard to tell as an outsider looking in. But yes, the humanitarian situation is often in the news for how much it's deteriorated over time and how little aid is actually getting through. And again, this is sort of, as I just said, this is worsened by supply chains being very vulnerable in this country. So have we seen any, you know, shipping, the shipping trade being targeted? So short answer to your question, yes, the Houthis have got the capacity and more importantly, the willingness to target shipping, particularly Saudi shipping or coalition affiliated shipping passing through the Red Sea and more particularly the uh, Bab al-Mandab Strait at the end of the Red Sea. And the Houthis, the capacity that Houthis have got to do this is also quite impressive. So sometimes it's the Iranians themselves targeting ships, but the Houthis have also uh, got access to things such as sea mines, ballistic missiles, which whilst inaccurate and probably in, in, ineffective at targeting shipping, still present a threat. I think sea mines are possibly the most important to the shipping community, I guess, because of their randomness almost. Because again, you can't often they're they're planted in very busy shipping lanes. So insurance companies, for example, will be taking note. And I assume prices go up accordingly every time uh, mines are reported to have been planted or found. Um, and perhaps a more common tactic though used by the Houthis is less to, uh, is is more targeted, and this is the use of small uh, motorized craft um, packed with explosives and controlled remotely from the land. And they are used to target shipping, and they've been highly effective in that they're hard to detect, they're hard to intercept. And the Saudis often get reports of these being intercepted. And whilst they are rarely used against random civilian shipping, the fact that the Houthis have the ability to do this and they have got the anti-shipping ability in some way, shape or form, whether that be drones, suicide boats packed with explosives or mines, presents a threat to the shipping community, whether that be military or civilian passing through the Red Sea. And uh, what about Al-Qaeda? Do you find that they are playing a prominent role in this conflict? Al-Qaeda are quite... uh, they're quite a difficult group to generalize in the Yemen conflict because it generally depends on what period of time you're talking about. So 
Al-Qaeda have at times fought against the Houthis, at times have fought against southern forces, and at times have targeted government forces, so it completely varies. At the moment, we're definitely seeing Al-Qaeda-related incidents on the platform generally targeting Houthi forces in Baida province towards the south. Um, the attacks are fairly rare, and two off the top of my head happened recently, earlier this week, just sniper attack and an IED attack targeting a Houthi convoy and a Houthi checkpoint. So, yes... Al-Qaeda, or ACAP as they're often referred to as Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, yes, they are still active in Yemen, but their role has definitely reduced in the last three or four years as the group has subdued somewhat and is married more into the local community. It's more ingrained now in local tribal groups and local tribal structure. And in some, and it has, and whilst all sides accuse each other of having links to ACAP as a way of delegitimizing them, there is some truth to these claims as well. ACAP is known to have had links with certain local commanders, whatever it may be. And if not formal links, then perhaps unofficial ways of, of support, not supporting each other, but using each other. So using ACAP perhaps to target the Houthis in order to fulfill some form of other objective. So it's a complicated group. And they've, um, whilst they are officially opposed to everyone, it seems to be, depend on the time in question. So thanks, guys. So I'll start wrapping it up now. I think obviously we've missed out a lot of conflicts and that's deliberate because of the interest of time and you know we've tried to justify why we've included these conflicts and i hope that was interesting to the the listeners themselves but there's two more things i want to add that uh, listeners can uh, two more resources that we have that listeners can go to if they want to find out a bit more and the first is on our blog and this is a recent article that we've put together about tracking armed conflict and how our software and our platform can be used to track armed conflict so if anyone interested in this then please feel free to head over to our blog to find this article as well as this, as something we mentioned earlier, is the Discord server, which we're currently running. And this Discord server is divided up into multiple channels. So perhaps if you're only interested in the Middle East, you can follow the Middle East channel. And same goes for conflicts such as Ukraine or West Africa. It's all divided into regions where members of the analyst team, as well as community members, all post their own input, facts, opinions, articles, whatever it may be. And there's always a good discussion going on in these channels. So I'd recommend heading over to here if you want to engage with the community a bit more and perhaps gather some information for yourself. And lastly, uh, we, we do do more video content as well. And every fortnight we release the Insights series of videos onto our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast from.